Hello and welcome to the Sheffield Institute for International Development podcast. I'm Lucia Robinson. Today I'm speaking to Professor Francis Cleaver, who is a Professor of Environment and Development at the University of Sheffield. Hello Francis, how are you? Hello, I'm fine. I'm good, thank you. First I'd like to ask, can you explain the term good governance in the context of the management of natural resources in Tanzania? Oh, well that's quite a tricky question because in policy terms, good governance is always thought to mean things like decentralisation, democracy, transparency of arrangements. And there have been a lot of efforts in development policy to try and encourage good governance in terms of institutions where the officers are elected, um, where the finances are transparent and so on. However, What I'm interested in, in terms of good governance, is a more working term in terms of who's included in uh, governance arrangements, in the decisions about the distribution of resources, who can have access to resources, who's excluded from them, whether that's fair or equal or just. So the way I work with good governance is much more of a working definition that's to do with equality and inequality. Your work refers to the formation of informal hybrid social institutions, why are they formed and can you discuss this in relation to governance in Tanzania's Usungu Plains? Yes, okay. So just a small correction there, I'm not just interested in so-called informal institutions. So I started off by being interested in formal institutions for governance, like water user associations that are set up for farmers to agree on the distribution of irrigation water between them, or forest management committees where the villagers decide on the rules for using the forest so it doesn't get overused and so on. But then during my research I've realised that the formal structures are only part of the story and the way in which people manage resources often draws on social arrangements, arrangements with family or kinship arrangements or arrangements with traditional leaders and customary practices and other sorts of arrangements that often aren't included in these formal committees. So I'm very interested in how people in practice blend the formal arrangements often set up by government or non-governmental organisations with their well-known practices, social arrangements and customs and so on. And these are what we call then the hybrid institutional arrangements. So what exactly is the interplay between local level and broader state governance? Now that's quite a tricky one. So I suppose for most people, if you were a farmer in the Usangu Plains in Tanzania, or a pastoralist, that's a cattle keeper, then your relationship with the the government and the state uh, very much comes at the local level through your interaction with village level government or ward level government or maybe um, maybe the district livestock officer or so on. So one of the things we're really interested in investigating is how government policies are translated through local level representatives and local level institutions, how they become adapted and reshaped to fit the local environment and what the power dynamics of that are. So who's able to exert power and reshape these um, governance arrangements to their benefit 
and to the exclusion of others. So who exactly has the power and who doesn't? (laughs) Well, that's a good question and that's what we're um, trying to look at. And the answer isn't simple because if you look at um, the academic debates, for example, they often see smallholder farmers as the kind of heroes, the people that we should be protecting against big commercial farming interests or um, government exercise of power. And uh, smallholder farmers are often seen as entrepreneurial and small people making a living. But if we dig down a bit deeper, for example, in Sangu Plains in Tanzania, we see that you know there are some small farmers who have actually managed to accumulate land, to build up patronage systems, to exclude others from land. And we also find that certain groups of people like pastoralists, the cattle keepers, or very small scale fisher folk, are also excluded or marginalised. So we're very interested in the kind of microdynamics of power which really shape whether people get access to resources or not. And one thing I would say about this is it's not just a theoretical discussion or it's not something that's just interesting because the majority of people in countries like Tanzania probably depend on natural resources for their livelihoods, for access to natural resources, to land, water, grasslands, forests are just essential to them being able to live, to being able to feed their families, send their children to school, pay hospital fees and so on. So if they don't get access or they don't get equal access to these resources, then that's linked to poverty and impoverishment. And that's one of the things that we try to investigate is how these governance arrangements shape access and what the impact on poverty or being able to develop economically is. So it seems to be a sense of traditional versus modern, is that right? Absolutely not. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, uh, so one of the things we look at in, in my kind of research is that uh, we feel that any arrangement is probably a blend of traditional and modern. And even things that people say are traditional have often been adapted or readapted over time. And so-called modern or bureaucratic or uh, government-initiated arrangements often also become adapted to socially fit. So there's this kind of blurring, if you like, and blending that goes on. It's often quite hard to tell what's traditional and what isn't. But people call on tradition. They say this is traditional as a way of justifying certain arrangements. But they also might call on this is government policy or this is what we do in Tanzania or this is a human right or something like that to also justify other arrangements. So it's quite complex and one of the things we're interested in in how power works is how people draw on tradition as something to legitimise certain actions or they draw on government policy to legitimise other actions and it's the interplay of that that we're interested in looking at. So this legitimisation, does it affect people in different ways when it comes to matters of authority and land ownership and rights? Absolutely. And a a really good example I could um, give you is how it affects women or or there's a gendered dynamic to it. I could give you an example of a woman who was a second wife of a farmer and he was a reasonably well-off small-scale farmer. So he had a number of fields, but she was the second wife. So a bit subordinate in that family. Um, But her husband and the first wife actually died and so she inherited the fields, the marital fields. 
from him. But due to sort of custom and tradition and patriarchy, the husband, the dead husband's family tried to take the fields back from her to his own family. Okay, so they were calling on tradition and saying, by tradition, these fields belong to the husband's family and so on. Now that woman was able to go to court, to the lowest level of the formal court system, and claim those fields for herself, okay? So she's using the modern bureaucratic, legislative, legal system to claim those rights against the, the husband's family. However, although she gets that court order, the husband's family and other patriarchs in the village then do their best to cut her off from water so that she can't actually farm those fields. Okay. So it's that kind of dynamic of the exercise of power and the drawing on different sources of authority that um, we're interested in and how it affects. That wouldn't have affected a man in the same way as it affects that woman and her marital relations. So who are the beneficiaries of good governance? <laughs> because she didn't seem to benefit in that. Yeah, so one thing I'm really interested in is whether you can design arrangements that, that favour certain marginalised groups. And we see this all over the world where we see, for example, quota systems for women. You know, you must have a certain number of women on uh, committees or in parliament or whatever. Well, I'm looking at that at a very local level. Um, whether you can do that at the level of the Water User Association or whatever. So in theory, we could deliberately create spaces to include particular groups of people. However, in practice, that's not necessarily what happens. Uh, maybe it's the wife of the head man who gets to sit on that committee using the authority of the head man. Or maybe women want to actually avoid being on that committee because it's more work and they're already overburdened with their domestic work and their farming work and so on. So what, one of the things I'm interested in is looking at what kind of governance arrangements benefit different people. And for women, for example, they might feel that they benefit better from informal arrangements, from arrangements um, seeking access to resources through family members or they might feel they benefit better through formal arrangements and that's one of the things we try to work out but there's no generalised picture of it so that's what makes it so complicated and so difficult for policy because it's hard to have a blanket recommendation. Having said that, it's obviously better, say, for women, if we do get more representation of women generally in decision-making forum and all those formal public institutions gradually helps to create more space uh, for them to participate. So how have you found that? Are more women getting on board? Do they really want to say, this is beneficial to me? I mean, what we find generally with most of the formal institutional arrangements is they tend to be dominated by people who are not poor and not marginalised. And by the very definition, the people who have the time to participate are not the poorest subsistence farmers because poor subsistence farmers are just scrabbling every day to get enough to eat and collect enough firewood to cook their food and so on. And you also find that those um, institutions are often dominated by people who are literate, you know, they have some human capital and resources and so on. So then the job is, if that's the case, and 
poorer people would be burdened by participating, then we have to work with those more elite representatives to develop this idea that they're there to serve people not like them, to take on the interests of poorer people and to represent them properly. And that's quite a, an interesting thing. And, and many people are very sympathetic to that approach. Many people in positions of authority think that is their job uh, to ensure that you know, everyone gets access, for example. So it's recognising that you can work with powerful people and elite people to further the interests of poorer people or marginalised people. So that is deemed to be more successful? I'd, I'd be cautious about saying more successful. As I say, I think there's no recipe, there's no blueprint, because power works in mysterious ways and it's very location-specific, actually, the, the micro-dynamics of power. So it's about working out and being aware of the possibilities of certain people appropriating and accumulating and excluding others and alert to how that's happening and then thinking about how you can open up other spaces or um, introduce other kind of discourses that bring that into the open and allow it to be challenged. Do you find that more people are having access to natural resources or they are stating I should be yeah. having more access? Yeah. So I think general trend and one of the things I'm interested in in current research is Obviously, over the last couple of decades or so, we've had a great thrust of kind of neoliberal capitalist approaches to natural resources and agriculture and so on. You know, bringing in multinational firms who are buying up land and uh, farming it in much more intensive ways and so on. But then more recently, we've had green economy ideas introduced that we should be doing things in a greener way, you know, managing forests, doing climate smart agriculture and so on. Now, uh, that sounds really good, but one of the things we're worried about is those twin processes, the kind of neoliberal capitalism of land and resources and the green economy are squeezing out some people, the people who aren't able to either be very market integrated or able to do sort of conservation and so on. So the jury's out really, and that's one of the things we're investigating in our current research in Tanzania. What are the effects of this twin process of sort of commercialization and intensification of agriculture alongside conservation and the greening, uh, or the supposed greening of the economy, whose able to benefit from that and be included in that to good effects both for the environment and for livelihoods and who's being squeezed out in the process um, and I suspect it's the poor smallest poorest people who are being squeezed so then the question is what are you able to do for them or do they just disappear off to towns to become security guards or exist in the informal economy which isn't a good outcome. Is that what you found? Um, that's one thing we suspect. I've been researching in the same area for about 20 years and there used to be a lot of small-scale fisher men in the area and they were seasonal fishermen so they were very small-scale farmers who at certain times of the year supplemented their income by coming down to the plains and fishing in the rivers and on the wetlands. They would smoke the fish and sell it in local markets and so on. 
But since then, there's been an expansion of irrigated agriculture. So a lot of that, the land that they would have been camping on to smoke their fish and so on has been taken up with irrigated agriculture and there's also been an expansion of conservation so the national park has been expanded and people have been evicted from it and over the process of 10 years those fishermen have totally disappeared you don't see them anymore now we know in the area there are about 2,000 of them or so at the beginning of the 2000s and now there are none and they were all young men so what's happened to them? We just don't know. We know they were right at the bottom of the pile in terms of livelihoods, you know, they weren't doing terribly well and they were having to mix up and dive, you know, piece together livelihoods from different sources. So where they've gone and what's happened to them, we don't know. And I suspect they might have migrated to urban areas. Um, so what, one of the dilemmas of research, of course, is you end up talking to the people who are there, who are visible, who are participating and so on. And often the poorest people or the sickest people or the most marginal people are not very visible because they don't have such regular lives, they don't participate in public decision making um, and so on. So it's a real challenge to research the lives of the poorest people. So are cultures dying out with these trends in livelihoods and jobs and so forth? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good question. And there's this idea that uh, traditional culture and traditional beliefs die out with modernisation and commercialisation and so on. We only see that to an extent and not entirely. And certainly where traditions can be used to make claims, then that's they're very much alive. So for example, uh, as you might imagine, where natural resources matter, then access to land is very important. And if access to land becomes very competitive, people need to make claims on their land and to ensure that they're known as the owners of that land if there's no formal land title system. So one thing people do is they make sure they bury their family members on that land. Okay, and then they can say my ancestors are on this land and they're making claims based on tradition, but it's a claim to property, drawing on that tradition. Um, so there's that mixing up of the traditional with the commercial, with property rights and so on. Very complex kind of overlaying of different systems of beliefs and claims. So I wouldn't say traditional belief is dying out in that way. However, there are certain kind of livelihoods that are so squeezed that they could cease to exist. And one of those is pastoralists, for example. So pastoralists who are cattle keepers and might have traditionally moved from place to place in search of the grazing for their cattle. Um, they're pretty much squeezed. The modern state governments don't like mobile pastoralists. They want people to settle in communities and attend schools and clinics and so on. They're squeezed by the expansion of agriculture. They're squeezed by the expansion of conservation. And uh, it is true that that whole livelihood is so threatened that it could actually uh, disappear with time, along with many of their traditions and cultural ways of doing things. You mentioned claims. Are these claims often used to abuse power? 
or are they mostly legitimate? I'm always wary of gross generalisations because you can always say it all depends and it's context specific, but I think it's very clear that better off people and better connected people have a bigger repertoire of claims they can make, if you like. So what we find is the biggest farmer in the village will probably have quite a lot of land and he'll be able to rent some of that land out to maybe younger men who he then can have in a patronage system. He'll probably sit on the village government as well and his brother or his son or something like that will probably sit on other committees like the grazing committee or the water committee and so on. So what you find is that the wealthier people and the more powerful people are able to bridge across different domains of influence and um, draw on networks and contacts across those so they can consolidate their claims across areas. And you find poorer people or smaller people with smaller livelihoods often can only claim in one domain or through one channel and therefore they're much more limited in what they in you know in their access and the claims they can make so whether you call it abuse or not it seems to be a fact that better off people uh, are able to make more claims on resources livelihoods development interventions uh, other people's time labor loyalty and so on. Have you seen the pastoralists forming unions or collectives to kind of fight back in a sense? Yes, so the pastoralists in the area we study have for a long time had a, an adapted hybrid form of uh, defence organisation if you like that, that comes from their tradition it's called the Sungu Sungu and was originally a kind of militia and they've adapted it as um, a kind of welfare militia defence organisation. However, they've been so squeezed in recent times that that's sort of gone underground or very quiet. And at the same time, some of the pastoralists have engaged in a government-initiated pastoralist association, um, which is supposed to be the public way of representing their interests. But even so, only maybe 25% of pastoralists in the area were ever part of that. Others were suspicious of being incorporated into government arrangements that they felt were bound to disadvantage them. And more recently on a trip to Tanzania, I went to a meeting actually of pastoralists in the pastoralist household where pastoralists from different ethnic groups, different types of pastoralists were meeting together around a traditional ceremony, but also discussing their political uh, position and their disadvantageous access to resources. At the same time, and simultaneously, the district level government was trying to set up another uh, institutional arrangement to represent pastoralists across the district. And I think it's a really good example of how you can try and set up representative arrangements. You can't make people take part in them, and there might be parallel or um, other more shadowy kind of arrangements that people do more naturally in their everyday lives, meeting and deciding things and coming to agreements and so on. So that's one of the things we try and research, like where the decisions are being made, who's represented in the different forum, whose views count, whose voices are heard. So whether it's the formal or the informal pastoralist representative groups, we don't see pastoralist women in them. 
Okay. Okay. So, um, you know, so that's another issue there. So the pastoralist voices that we're hearing, whether it's in the government-initiated institutions or the pastoralist-led institutions, the voices we hear are older male pastoralist voices. So what do you foresee in the next 20 years in terms of power and authority and women having a say? Ooh, now that's a tricky one. Well, I think in the next 20 years, certainly in this particular area in Tanzania, the pressures will only increase on um, as population increases and as the you know, demand increases. So the pressure on resources will increase. I think there are some really good initiatives for um, involving a variety of people, including women. Um, for example, WWF had recently had a project, a pilot project called Swarm, which was a social learning project to try and bring in different groups of stakeholders and get them used to talking to each other and debating and so on. And I think those kind of pilot projects were very successful at including women or other kinds of um, disadvantaged groups. Uh, but the challenge will be how to bring those into more mainstream uh, institutional structures and environments. So in pilot projects you can intensively um, try and work to increase the voice of certain people, but then the challenge is um, what to do about that. I'd sort of encourage people when they're thinking about this to think of power and access to resources as quite complicated. These problems are complex and unlikely to be solved by uh, some magic bullet, that uh, the solutions are also likely to be sort of multifaceted and work out all the time.